So Luke chapter 5, passage that's just been in my mind for the past week or two, so decided to run with it. And the question I want to pose at the start is what does an encounter with Jesus actually look like? What does it mean to have an encounter with King Jesus? What changes take place? What happens? What is the before and after picture when someone has truly encountered him, met him, the way Peter does in this passage? So we're in Luke chapter 5, and I want to read verses 1 to 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's Lake Galilee, with people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. So there are a lot of people in in this wonderful religious land of Northern Ireland who go to church. There are a lot of people who would point back and say at some point in history, uh, maybe in their childhood or in their past, they have prayed what what is termed a sinner's prayer. Um, but what I, I want to probe a bit deeper and say, if you've really encountered Jesus, what's the outcome? What happens in your life? And it, as the passage starts, Jesus is at the lake and the crowds are gathering around him as he preaches. Now, apparently, what this literally says is the longer he preached, the more the crowd grew. So I'm thinking new church growth strategy here for table. The longer I preach the more people will come. No? Okay, (laughs) I've been voted down on that one already. But that's what it says. The more Jesus spoke, he spoke the word of God with such authority, with such power that people came to listen to him. And I don't think it really is any different today. I think when the word of God is preached, in all seriousness, all joking aside, when the word of God is preached with authority and power under the anointing of the Holy Ghost, It's a good thing to listen to. It draws people. It holds people. We're living in in an age of history that is referred to as the postmodern age. And if if you're to put a one-sentence definition on postmodernism, it is that postmodern people believe there is no absolute truth. What is true for you 
is not necessarily true for me. That's what they say. And that creates an incredibly unstable world where nothing is solid. There's nothing people can cling to as an unchanging truth in that system of thinking. People just do what they want. Well, it's true for me and it's right for me, so I will do it. And I don't care how it affects other people. And it's just a bit like the book of Judges where people did what was right in their own eyes. And then every generation they paid the consequences for it. In that world where people say there's no truth, Jesus still shouts into that world and says, I am the truth. I am the unchanging thing that you can cling to and build your life upon. There's something powerful about the word of God. Never has changed. And in, in verse 3, Jesus is he's quite inconsiderate of Peter and how he feels after his failure all night long out fishing because Peter and the guys, they fished all night, night times when you do the sort of fishing that they were doing, and they had caught nothing, and they were finishing off for the day. Now, I know what it's like to come away from the lake after a couple of hours of recreational fishing with no fish. And the shame that you have to deal with and going home and just waiting for that question. How many did you get? And you're just like, well, you just weren't feeding today or we were at the wrong place. Or you had all these excuses why you didn't get any fish. If it's your livelihood, it's bound to be devastating. Because for Peter coming, the, you know, there's no money in the bank back in, in, in those days. And for Peter coming off the lake, having caught no fish that he can bring to the market and sell, he's not going to have any money to buy food at the market to bring home to his wife and his children. And this is actually devastating for him. And he's really quite despondent. He's going to be going home and telling his wife to, to pull out whatever leftover stale crumbly bread there is from the previous day and do something with that for the kids because he's no money to buy fresh food. And he's not feeling really in good form. And then Jesus comes along and walks into the boat. And he says to Peter, will you put the boat out a little bit from the shore? Jesus wanted to teach the crowds. He wanted to, to use the water as a sort of amplification system to make his, sound, or his voice sound a bit louder. And he wanted Peter to put the boat out so he could teach the crowds without them pressing around him. And Peter owes him one. Because previously, Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law. In Luke chapter 4, she'd been sick and Jesus had healed her. So he'd had prior contact with Jesus. He knew there was something special about this guy. And he was willing then to go back out and allow Jesus to be an inconvenience to him. Have you ever come off a bad day at work where everything has failed? Everything has failed. You feel on your way home that you've got nothing to show for your day's work that you've just chased your tail all day long and things have gone wrong and it's just been a total failure from start to finish. All you want to do is get home, get some downtime, whatever way you do that, and then Jesus gets into the boat <laughs> or gets into the car or gets into your mind and he tells you, there are some people that I want to bring my word to. I need you to help me. I need you to get into the car and I need you to go and visit a person. I need you to get on the phone and make a call and encourage somebody, whatever it may be. Have you ever experienced that where Jesus is just um, a little bit inconsiderate of your schedule and your plans? I think throughout this passage, Jesus is, is checking Peter out to see what is in Peter's heart and does Peter have what it takes to be a disciple? Will Peter... 
accept this inconvenience and go back out onto the water. And he does. He does. And somebody who really encounters Jesus and really knows Jesus, Jesus has got access to their calendar. Linda and I have our calendar set up, and I'm sure lots of you do. You have your calendar set up on your phones so that if I put something into the calendar, it appears in Linda's phone. And if she puts something into the calendar, it appears on my phone. Can Jesus put something into the calendar? Can he access your schedule and put something in that you didn't have in and maybe don't really want in, but he wants you to do? And are you responsive to that? Peter responds and says, okay, and away they go back out onto the water. So Jesus does his preaching, and the crowds enjoy it. And then he turns in verse 4, and he says to Simon, Simon and Peter, just in case you're not that familiar with the, the New Testament, we're talking about the same person. Simon is original name. Peter will be the name that Jesus will give him. So it says in verse 4, Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep water. And let down the nets for a catch. Now, Peter's done well so far. Okay, he has, He's gone out on the boat. He's let Jesus use the boat. And he's now thinking, he's getting near the end of the message. Nearly done. Wrap up and we'll get home. And then Jesus turns and says to Peter, let's go fishing. And I can imagine Peter, because he, he is quite wordy, Peter. He, he's, he's never short of something to say to Jesus. Uh, he's good at expressing what's on his heart. And I can imagine him just saying, no, I'm tired. There are no fish out there. We have fished there all night long. We haven't got any fish. I have already washed the nets, Jesus. All right, I don't want to wash them again. I've already washed them. You're so inconsiderate sometimes of me and my friends here that just want to go home and relax. Has Jesus ever asked you to do something that looks like a waste of time? Has he ever, you know, has he ever come in and almost in his audacity claimed to know more about something than you think you know about it? You've got it all sussed out. You've done the fishing. You've gone through the motions. You've done everything you normally do. And he comes and says, let's try this. And you're like, no, 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 no. I know better, Jesus. I know better. <laughs> I've done everything that needs done and, and I know better. This is a carpenter. This is the son of a carpenter telling a fisherman how to fish where to put his nets in. And I'm sure Peter was thinking, Jesus, I know how to fish. You know how to work with wood. You do your thing and let me do mine. And the way it's set up, and you'll find this frequently in the, in the, in the Gospels, whenever a miracle is about to take place, the writer will emphasize how unlikely a miracle is. It's daytime. You don't fish at daytime. And there were no fish. A different matter if they had come in and they'd had a stack of fish and Jesus says, well, let's go back and get a few more. And they're like, well, okay, there were no fish and it's daytime. And he's just, the, Luke is setting us up that what's going to happen here is a miracle. It's not just a coincidence. It's not a bit of good advice. It's a miracle. And I want you to see what Peter's response to Jesus is because there are six words here that are powerful and words that we should have in our vocabulary frequently when we are praying and when we're responding to Jesus. It's, in, it's at the end of verse 5. In my Bible, the six words are these. Because you say so, I will. Because you say so, I will. It doesn't make sense to me right now. It's not convenient to me right now. But because you say so, I will. That's a powerful posture of heart to have before Jesus. 
I won't try to argue out of it. I won't try to convince myself that I shouldn't really do it because I'm tired and I deserve a rest. Because you say so, I will. Peter recognizes Jesus' authority. Even though Peter is the captain of the boat and the one steering it and the one in control of it and the one who owned the the, the business, he still recognizes Jesus' authority. And he trusts him without understanding him. And that's another real challenge in terms of the posture of our hearts before Jesus. There are times you will not understand and you will still be called to trust. And I don't think any of us will ever get to the point where we understand everything. There will always be mysteries. There will always be questions that we cannot answer. And the choice remains, will we trust this God who has revealed himself in Jesus Or will we continue to place question after question in front of him to satisfy our curious little minds? Peter trusted Jesus. And those who have encountered Jesus will trust him, even when it doesn't make sense. And they will frequently have a direct line with God where he says, I want you to do this. And you say, because you say so, I will. God uses people who have that attitude. And I wonder any of you hearing God about something that seems a bit weird or just not quite right or doesn't agree with your logic, your professional opinion on the whole thing and you you know God is poking at you and it doesn't seem to make sense. This is, I'm not in a series at the minute. This is what I believe God has put in my heart for today and I think these six words are important because you say so I will. I've never regretted anything that I felt God calling me to do. Never, never. I've walked with him for nearly 20 years. Never have I done something that I felt him telling me to do and wished afterwards I hadn't done that. Sometimes immediately afterwards, there's a wee moment where you're thinking, oh my goodness, I've just, <laughs> I've just done this thing. Is it going to be all right? I, have, I, can, I can honestly say, I can't look back at any point in my life and say, I felt God tell me to do that and I did it and it was a, a mess. The messes are my messes. They're, they're never his. Many people have tried to bring the hope of the gospel to this community. And there's been a lot of unproductive gospel work done in this community. A lot of good work. But there's a lot of people in this town that don't know Jesus and don't walk with Jesus. And it would be very easy to say, forget about that time. It'd be very easy to say, let's move somewhere else and use the gifts God has given us somewhere else. But this is the time that he has called us to. And because you say so, I will. I don't know if this is definitely true or not, but I was told by a reasonably reliable source that John Wesley came through this town a couple of hundred years ago. And he found it so hard to preach the gospel here. And so hard to get a response for people that he literally stood at the, at the outskirts of the town when he was leaving and he brushed the dust off his feet. Almost as a sign of contempt against a, a place that was so hard for the gospel to penetrate. But Lord, because you say so, we will. We will. Even though it has been hard for others in the past. And then things get frantic, absolutely frantic in in verse 6. Because once they've put down the nets and done what Jesus asked them to do, they catch such a large number of fish that the nets begin to break. 
And they, they call the other guys with the other boat and say, we need another boat. And they get the other boat. And there's so much fish in both the boats that both the boats begin to sink. It's just bedlam out on the lake. And the crowd on the shore that have been listening to Jesus, they don't really know what's going on, but they know something's going on. <laughs> Something big is happening out on the lake. They can hear a bit of screaming and shouting and kerfuffling on the lake. And the boats are beginning to, to sink and the disciples are getting scared. And the term that, that Luke uses to describe the catch of fish is the Greek word multitude, which is used frequently in the Bible for a large number of people, not a large number of animals. Catches a multitude of fish. And you know what? There's an experience that Peter has here. And you know, anyone who has encountered Jesus will have had this experience of breaking and sinking. Breaking and sinking. And a realization that we cannot actually make it on our own. We cannot do the things that we're called to do or the things that we want to do on our own. A, a, a moment in life or a period of life or maybe a repeated experience of breaking and sinking. I am going down without Jesus. I am going down. I am sinking. My nets are breaking. My wisdom, my professional experience, everything that I think I know about what I do is coming apart. And I need him. And those who've encountered Jesus have had those crisis moments in life where you feel the nets are breaking and the boat is sinking. I was chatting to, to Aaron one time a couple of weeks ago. Don't worry. And um, it's not, not that one. I, <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was uh, just, I, I, I said something to him, and he'd actually read it that day in, in Nicky Gumbel's Bible in one year, and I'd read it in a, in a different source in a book. I don't know who actually came up with this quote, but the quote was, don't trust a leader without a limp, for he has never wrestled with God. I don't know who originally came up with that, whether it was Nicky Gumbel or not, but it was just I, I brought it up. He'd just read it. It was interesting. Breaking and sinking is part of the territory of, of following Jesus and establishing any sort of ministry. And sometimes leaders in ministry can be so, and I'm definitely not talking about myself, and you will agree, they can be so impressive, they can be so perfect, they never seem to get anything wrong, they walk tall, everything about them seems to be sorted out and under control, and they don't appear to have a limp. And, and, and moving on, on the story of Jacob, this guy, whoever came up with this, says, don't trust a leader without a limp, because if somebody does not limp, they've never wrestled with God. I think that's brilliant. These times of breaking and sinking and limping are vital as we walk with God. If somebody spiritually has a bit of a limp about them, you know that person has been in the secret place wrestling with God. Those who have encountered Jesus will experience breaking and sinking. A realization that without him it's all hard work and ultimately failure. John Piper pointed out, commenting on this passage, that this was a, an unprecedentedly, unprecedented catch of fish in terms of its magnitude in a place that previously had been hopelessly unproductive. A place that was dark, unresponsive, discouraging. Now there was an unprecedented catch, a multitude. Do you know any places that are known for just being hard and discouraging and dark 
and unchanging and unflinching. And whenever Jesus comes onto the boat and you go back into those places, then the, the catch is massive. Don't ever quit. Don't ever let the history of a place cause you to turn around and say to Jesus, we've been there before. Other people have been there before. We're not going to bother. Another thing that happens when you encounter Jesus in, in verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, when he saw the fish, he fell at Jesus' knees. Those who have encountered Jesus live at his feet, live lives in a posture of worship. Until now, he's been called Simon. In this verse, Luke calls him Simon Peter. And after this, he will be Peter throughout the rest of Luke's gospel. And he's at a crossroads in his life. He's at a place of transition and transformation. And he falls at Jesus' feet and he actually asks him to leave. You know, that's the response of a lot of people when they encounter the presence of God. They are so convicted. They are so in awe of who he is. And a self-defense mechanism triggers into action and they run away. And they make all sorts of excuses. Well, I don't want to engage with God's word. I don't want to go to church. I don't want any of that Christianity stuff. It's not for me. And they make all sorts of excuses to run away and to get as much distance as they can between them and Jesus because his presence illuminates the dark areas of their lives. Not to condemn them, but to transform them. He bows at Jesus' feet. If you've encountered Jesus, your life will be marked by worship. And do not restrict worship to singing. Okay, Your whole posture of heart will be one of worship. You will worship him every single day. You will worship him multiple times during the day. You'll find yourself just going about your business in the car or at work or walking from class to class in school. And you'll just find your heart overflowing. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Worship just oozing out of you instinctively. If you've encountered him, that happens. If that is not happening, you need to encounter him more. Fresh. Be at his feet and allow that worship to come out of your heart. David Wynn's a a guy who leads a teaching ministry that I traveled with on on one occasion. and, And he's one of the most impressive people I've ever met in my life. Incredible preacher and godly man. And he said, God has never met a person he cannot change. And as Simon comes to Jesus, Luke says, Simon Peter hits the deck and bows at Jesus' feet. And when he gets up, he will be different. The way I was picturing this, I was thinking about it yesterday. It's almost as if somebody's receiving a knighthood. You know, they get somebody to bow and, and then they say, arise, Sir Peter. It's like he comes and he bows before the king. And when he gets up again, he's not the same as he was before. He's not the same. Also in verse 8, look at how how Simon Peter addresses Jesus. Previously in verse 5, he calls him master. That's a term of respect for authority. Master, teacher, rabbi. It's it's a general, just respectful term for somebody who obviously has has a teaching gift and authority in in this culture and context. But in verse 8, he's not wasting any time with master or fancy terms. He calls him Lord. Those who have encountered Jesus recognize that he is Lord and live as if it's true, that he is Lord. And not only does Peter recognize who Jesus is, 
but he recognizes who he is himself. He says in verse 8, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Jesus doesn't mention it. Jesus doesn't say you are a sinful man. Jesus doesn't preach a sermon against sin. His presence causes sin to be exposed. Again, that's why people run from his presence. Causes sin to be exposed. It's Peter that brings up the, the sin issue. Not Jesus. I think it's amazing. I remember reading a story. I don't know if I mentioned this recently or not. It was in my mind. But I remember reading a, a story about Smith Wigglesworth, um, who was a, a fiery sort of a Pentecostal preacher of the last century. And he was on a train one day, and a, a cleric, sort of white-collar minister, got onto the train and was sitting in the same carriage as Smith Wigglesworth. Didn't know who he was. Uh, and, you know, they'd never met before, and he didn't know that, that Wigglesworth was a, was a preacher. And this guy, they were just sitting there doing their own thing in the carriage. And then this, this guy said to him, excuse me, sir, you convict me of sin. <laughs> they hadn't even spoken. But just the very presence of the man caused this other guy to start to feel a conviction. The presence of God within him. And when we encounter Jesus, we become incredibly aware of our own sin. Incredibly aware of it. It's what happened to Isaiah when he saw the, the vision of God in the temple. He just became aware of who he was and the nation that he, that he was part of and his lips were unclean in the presence of God. All of that was exposed. It's a powerful thing to live in his presence, folks. It's a powerful thing to, to bow at his feet and to repeatedly say, search me and know me and show me if there's any wicked way within me. I have to be honest with you, I am sometimes amazed at how tolerant Christians are of sin. I'm absolutely amazed, particularly in the area of entertainment, what they watch. Just can't believe what, what goes on sometimes. Even leaders, even Christian leaders and ministers and, and what they're watching on TV every night at nine o'clock or whatever it may be. Just I'm I'm just, I come to the conclusion, you must not spend much time at his feet because if you did, he'd shine the light on that and you wouldn't have it. You wouldn't tolerate it. When we live in that place of bowing before him and gazing upon his, his awe and his majesty, we will have our sin exposed. And, and Peter's response was the wrong response in that he said, go away, Lord. You know, you're exposing my sin. You're making me feel bad. Go away from me. It's not what Jesus wants. He doesn't want you to make, to make you feel bad and send you away from him. He wants you to know, yes, you have sin. Stay with me, walk with me, and we will transform it. We will change it. You will get up off your knees a different man, Peter. Again, John Piper points out how the blessing of this event brought repentance out of Peter. It wasn't a sermon on sin. It was not a case of repent and then you will be able to catch fish. Go home, Peter, and get your life sorted out and confess all your sins and, and apologize to all the people you need to apologize to and then come back tonight and go fishing. You'll have success. It's the other way around. Jesus lavished blessing upon Peter to the point that Peter fell on his knees and wanted to repent. Was Paul right in Romans? He says that it's the goodness... The blessing of God leads to repentance. Not the condemnation of God, not the, the wrath, but the 
goodness of God. Peter experiences the goodness of God here. And he doesn't start boasting about the blessing. He doesn't run around and, and set up, you know, Simon Peter International Ministries and, and, and preach the gospel of if you follow Jesus, you'll catch lots of fish. He doesn't go out and tell people, do you know what? You need to bring Jesus into your business because if you bring Jesus into your business, you'll have success. Of course, you should have Jesus in your business and in, in your work life and in every part of your life. But that's not what Peter's going to preach. That's trite. What Peter's going to say is, you know what? I don't care about these fish. You are amazing. <laughs> you're amazing. I don't care. You know, thank you for blessing me. But, but you know, you're amazing. Do you notice that in the rest of the past, he doesn't care about the fish. He doesn't give a monkeys about them. He doesn't count them. He doesn't sell them. He doesn't, we don't even know. Did he leave them in the boat? What did he do? Did he put them back in? He doesn't care about the fish. He's not going to go and preach a gospel of let Jesus into the boat and your boat will be full of fish. He's going to preach a gospel of Jesus is incredible. He's incredible. Forget about the fish. He's incredible. He transforms people. His goodness brings repentance. And those who have encountered Jesus will be fully aware of their sinfulness. And I would challenge and, and counsel you once again, if you're not in a discipleship group or something similar to it, get into one. Because you will just find the light shining every day on all those wee things. We have noticed as we've talked week after week, and we're even saying on Tuesday night, there are things that we're bringing up that we feel God's putting his finger on that six months ago wouldn't have bothered us. Wouldn't really, you know, wouldn't maybe have been an issue. But, but just the more we are exposing ourselves to his word, particularly the epistles in the New Testament, we're just finding them just pointing on attitudes regarding our speech and our actions and our attitudes that, that he's just... Shining the light on. Those who have encountered Jesus are aware of their own sinfulness. I just love the fact that he doesn't care about the fish. We would be counting the fish and, and going around telling stories about the fish. You know, Can I give my testimony at your synagogue and tell you about the fish? No, it's all about Jesus. I don't care about the fish. In verse 10, those who have encountered Jesus have a change of calling or a development of calling that involves evangelism. Peter was a fisherman and Jesus takes his calling and his skill and the thing that he's good at and he takes it and he, and he puts it through the evangelism machine. He says, you're a fisherman, you're going to fish for men. You're going to fish for men. And this is not a request. It's not a job offer. It's a command and it's a promise. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And this is where this word multitude comes in because, as I said earlier, the multitude of fishes is what, what Luke refers to in verse 6. Luke also wrote the book of Acts, a lot of which is about Peter's ministry and then Paul's ministry. And the word multitude is used over and over again. The same word. You caught a multitude of fish. You fell at Jesus' feet. He said you're going to catch multitudes of men and women. And it happens. In Luke volume 2, which is Acts, it happens. He catches multitudes. The promise is fulfilled. You see, those who have encountered Jesus, listen to me now and get this, because I think the church in general doesn't get this. Those who have encountered Jesus, join him on mission. It is not optional. It's not optional. 
We've talked about mission before. Mission can mean and does mean global and, and it can mean the very frontiers and the hardest places on earth. And it can also mean your local community and the people that live in your neighborhood and in your own town. Mission is everywhere. But I want you to get this and, and really lay hold on it. Followers of Jesus are fishers of men. You cannot pick one and say, I'll not bother with the other. To say that I am following Jesus, but I'm not interested in mission. I'm interested in discipleship, but I'm not interested in mission is just a contradiction in terms. It is unbiblical. It's profoundly unbiblical. Disciples are missionaries. Followers of Jesus are fishers of men. Do not separate those things. And the beauty of, of evangelism and mission is it will look different for every person in every context every day. Please do not think that I'm saying you have to become a preacher or you have to start something. It could be how you encounter people in work. Chatted with Mike a couple of months ago just about lots of conversations he was having with guys that he works with. That's mission. Yeah, that's mission. It could be having coffee with someone. It could be inviting someone to your house for dinner and just taking interest in their lives and investing in them. It could be starting a ministry. It could be lots of things. It could be traveling to somewhere else and doing something new. It could be the guys who are pioneering the, the Friday night work here with the young people. It could be Jill on a Thursday morning with, with tots and toddlers and their, and their mums and grandparents and, and whoever comes with them. And whatever you're called to probably will terrify somebody else. I'll preach a million sermons before I will ever go and, and be with the nappy army on a Thursday morning. Like, that's, that is terrifying, all right? That is not my calling. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> well, I'll hopefully come sometime to say hello. Like, but you know what? Don't, don't be then see, going away thinking, oh, David said I have to be involved in mission, which means I have to start something and do something that I, that I don't want to do. I'm no good at. No, 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 no. God will use you where you are and he'll give you opportunities where you are. But don't say, I will be a disciple, but I'm not really that good at the mission thing, so I'm not going to bother. Because if you say that, you're not a disciple. <laughs> the two are married and cannot be separated. Discipleship and mission go hand in hand. One without the other is not possible. And I love the fact that despite Peter's sin, and he's a sinful man and he knows he is, Despite Peter's sin, Jesus says, we're, we're going we're to go on mission, Peter. We're going to work together. You're going you're to work in the kingdom of God. Jesus, again, this, this attitude that we sometimes have, Jesus will go around and he'll find the good people. And he will use the good people. There's nothing good about Peter. He's a rough, rough character. Rough in his language, rough in his contacts, just rough. And Jesus says, Peter, come on. He doesn't say, Peter, you know, nice to meet you. Enjoy your fish. Do you know any nice people who live around here that I could go and recruit to, to go on mission with me? No, he texts Peter. And Peter in verse 11 and the rest of them leave everything and follow him. Behind them, picture the scene on the beach. The crowd are watching from, there's a whole nother sermon, the crowd watching from a distance thinking, what is going on? But Peter's, Peter's standing behind them are the boats Fish flipping about all over the place in the boats and animal rights people going mad about the fish flipping in the boats. And Jesus is in front of him and he, he just walks away. He just walks away. He doesn't say, just, just hang on, Jesus, to sort these out, take them to market, sell them. Just, just walks away. 
That's how amazing he is. That's how incredible he is. Get that. Hold that in your mind. He didn't count the fish. What, what happened in that miracle was not, oh, I've been blessed with lots of fish. What happened in that miracle, I've been blessed because I have seen Jesus. I have encountered him. And he means more than any other thing and all other things added together. Don't come close to him. If you've encountered him, you'll never follow anyone else. Never. Tom Wright says in his commentary on Luke, just again trying to picture, picture this scene, he says, feel the sense of awe and terror as you come to terms with the power of Jesus. Think about Peter in the boat. The sense of awe as you come to terms with the power of Jesus and then feel that sense of awe and terror increase as he turns to you with what looks like a question but actually is a command, and I would say a promise. You and I are going to be working together from now on, he says. And you realize you have no choice. If this man is not worth following, nobody is. If this man is not worth following, nobody is. So what does an encounter with Jesus look like? You want to evaluate your own life and think, have I encountered him? Or maybe, have I encountered him recently? Do I encounter him enough? Do I encounter him daily? Or is it something that's a way off in the past? An encounter with Jesus involves these things and leads to these things. Obedience, even when it seems inconvenient and you're tired, or when it seems pointless because he's telling you to do something that seems just silly. Obedience, the heart posture, because you say so, I will. That's the language of someone who has encountered Jesus. It can be the simplest thing. I was at a coffee shop the other day at lunchtime. I saw someone in the coffee shop and I thought, I think I know who that person is. I vaguely recognize her. I've only seen her a couple of times before at table. I'm not sure if it's her or not. I'm not going to go over and make a complete muppet out of myself in case it's not her. And as I got my coffee and I was, I was heading back to school and I was sort of halfway back to the car and I just felt God saying, would you go back and just say hello to her and just make contact? You know, sometimes it's just, it's a wee bit inconvenient. That's, that's not a massive incident or illustration, but just sometimes you're going about your business and you just feel God stepping in and you're like, okay, because you say so, I will. So those who have encountered Jesus are obedient even when it's inconvenient or pointless in their opinion. Those who have encountered Jesus have experienced breaking and sinking and they walk with a limp. Thank God for the limp. I have a limp in both legs, all right? If it was a spider, I'd have eight limps. Limp, limp, limp. And those that know me well know it. Those who have encountered Jesus worship him. Their lives are postured at his feet. They recognize that he is Lord and they recognize their own sin. And their lives are focused on discipleship and mission because the two cannot be separated. Have you encountered Jesus? I like to think that I encounter him every day. I aim to. In his word, in prayer, in just constant encounter. So that these attitudes are instinctive. Let's pray.